I read an article that you wrote in that student housing magazine and Uh-oh. <laughs> I thought I was going to read about dorms and what you're doing in the business. And you're like, oh, we were out here camping and talking about life and howling at the moon and, you know, talking about Elon Musk shooting rockets. And then it was connected it to something else that was seem totally unrelated. <laughs> yeah. I, I, uh, when, when people ask what's on, I, so, so the prompt for that was, uh, you know, it's a trade magazine. They, they say, Hey, industry leaders talk about what you're thinking about. And I was like, are you sure? <laughs> be careful. Be careful what you wish for. <laughs> I'll tell you what I'm thinking about. And what I was talking to them about was, uh, psychedelics. I was talking about modular building and how, you know, the future is robotics and offsite construction and stacking apartments like Legos. And I think I talked about decentralized finance, DeFi, aspect of crypto and you know some of the potential not necessarily in pumping garbage crypto coins but the infrastructure it's like in the 80s when the internet's like starting to emerge and people are like wait so i can send a message to the guy across the hall that's dumb it's like no 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 no, no. the practical application may not change your life but what gets built upon that is going to change the world welcome to find your freedom the best entrepreneurship podcast. Real quick, I have three things for you. Number one, are you an aspiring entrepreneur that wants to find your own freedom or are you just unfulfilled or unhappy in your current job and you crave more? Our goal at FYF is to build a community uniting successful entrepreneurs with aspiring entrepreneurs and provide the best resources possible to provide you on your entrepreneurial journey. Number two, check out our free entrepreneurship ebook and all the resources you need to find your own freedom at findyourfreedompod.com. Number three, one of the best ways for podcasts to grow is to share episodes with your friends and family. It would mean the world to Doug and I if you would follow us on your favorite audio platform and watch us and subscribe on YouTube. We just finished recording with Grant Collard, and his story of grinding his way to success is truly straight out of a movie, from getting escorted out of his first and only corporate job to now managing over $1 billion in real estate assets and student housing. His advice for aspiring entrepreneurs is so powerful. This is one of my favorite episodes to date. I'm super stoked about it. Please remember to like, share, and subscribe. Thank you for listening. Yo, 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 yo. Welcome, Grant. Super excited to have you on the podcast with us today. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. What's up, Grant? Welcome to the Find Your Freedom podcast. Love having a fellow real estate entrepreneur and investor on with us here today. Um, so let's uh, let's begin by um, discussing how you uh, chose the student housing niche. You know, it's it's interesting. I get asked that question a fair amount. And I think there's a tendency for entrepreneurs to kind of go back and rewrite history and make it sound like we had this big thought out thesis and um, we'd studied this, this sector for years. The truth is um, I was 25 years old and it was an opportunity that was thrown in front of me and we just ran with it. And in a lot of ways, we were just very, very, very lucky. Um, but, you know, going back to when I was 25, um, we saw a sector of the real estate market that was growing very quickly and that had not yet been institutionalized. So, for example, um, you know, SFR investing uh, was not like a huge thing institutionally 20 years ago until Blackstone. SFR. Yeah, just just kind of like individual, you know, single family rentals. Um, Got it. Th- those types of things were really not a huge deal 20 years ago, even 10 years ago. And right. then you had some of these larger groups like Blackstone 
that come in and say, hey, why don't we why don't we question the assumption that this is impossible to manage or to run at an institutional scale? Student housing was the same way. And so, you know, 15 years ago, people would say, well, what is student housing? And they would think, oh, gosh, it's these antiquated 1960s cinder block kind of prison feel dormitory style buildings. Yeah. That's most experiences. And they're very, very difficult to manage. Uh, you know, all the things that they say about student housing are true. You walk in Monday morning and you get a report of what happened over the weekend. And you're like, <laughs> man, these, these guys are animals sometimes. Um, and so what that, what I realized was that if there's something that is perceived to be a huge operational headache, people say, yeah, I would never do that because of the management. Therein lies the opportunity. And somebody will do it eventually. And so what, what happened from 2010 to 2020 was we saw a massive institutionalization of student housing real estate. You had large groups that came in and said, you know what, we're not going to manage three or four apartment complexes. We're going to manage a couple hundred and we're going to do it around the country. And we kind of jumped on, on that bus. Uh, we were tiny, um, but the biggest players in the market were also tiny. When we started, I think the, the largest players had maybe 5,000 beds, maybe 10,000 beds. Um, and today they have hundreds of thousands. And so uh, we jumped in at a time that was super fragmented, uh, very mom and pop industry that started consolidating uh, very, very quickly. Do you think it helped you or gave you any advantage being that you were only 25, like fresh out of college, as opposed to... Some of your competitors who are in their 40s, 50s, and 60s trying to do it and understand and get in the mindset of the college student. For sure. You know, the, the clientele. Yeah. So, so <laughs> a lot of the culture of our company and, and kind of our customer service philosophy was how much I hated living in student housing. <laughs> and yeah, it was fresh on your mind at, at that age. It was fresh on my mind. And, you know, it's funny. I, I watched these, um, I watched some of our residents and they do insane stuff and they, they party. And I think about, you know, when I was a freshman um, at BYU and, you know, BYU is not necessarily thought of as a party school, but I can think back to a time when I was sitting in my dorm, just throwing a knife into my door and, you know, stabbing the linoleum and, and normal you know, stuff, I think like just throwing a knife. What was, <laughs> just thinking, what was wrong with me? Like, what was wrong with that guy? He had a lot of pent up energy, you know, and um and we kind of trashed it. I paid, you know, they were very strict. I paid every dollar of that at the end of the, uh, at the end of the year. But um, I, I think back to some of my early interactions with my landlords and I just thought, I feel so powerless here. And I feel like this, this relationship is so adversarial and I want to see if we can do something about that. Um, not to say that we get it right every time, but we try and come in with a collaborative mindset, like, Hey, you know, we don't necessarily see this power imbalance as your landlord. In fact, we actually kind of hate that term. Um, this is your home and we want you to be happy here. And, and we work where you live, not you live where we work. It's, it's kind of a mindset shift. And uh, my wife and I had the opportunity actually to buy uh, the dorm that or the, the you know, student housing that we lived in uh, before we got married. And it was just really fun to go through and say, Hey, I hated this place. I wanted to burn it down and now I own it. That's so full circle. what are we going to do about this? Yeah. Full circle. Yeah. That's so cool. Yeah. There's two sides of that coin too. You were talking about how you were young. So you had a connection. It was already, already fresh in your mind about how, you know, living in a dorm was. I think the other side of that is that you didn't know really what you were up against. You know, you were young and I don't think you realized what 
you know, the magnitude of what you were really getting into that I think probably paid another, another role in it. Don't you think? That, that's perfect. I, I was going to say that and then I got carried away, uh, <laughs> you know, reminiscing. Um, that's absolutely true. Uh, you know, I tell people in our company, um, I don't know that we could start our company today. Uh, the, the, all of the factors and all the conditions are totally different. And, and then I follow that up with, I don't know that we would want to <laughs> just knowing, <laughs> knowing what is ahead and knowing, you know, some of the brain damage and, and the difficulty that you'll encounter. But yeah, when you're 25 and you're, you're straight out of school um, or straight off of kind of a soulless corporate job, you don't really care. You're just saying, listen, I'm willing to pay almost any price to have the freedom to do what I want to do, or at least feel some semblance of control um, on my day to day, and and we'll talk about that more. I mean, I think your podcast is aptly named. I think that's my number one driving value behind um, my entrepreneurial activities. It's not necessarily even money or or uh, recognition. Actually, it's certainly not recognition. In fact, I like to be kind of behind the scenes. Um, but it's just having the control of your day to day. Yeah. Let's go a little deeper into that. So, you know, one of the hardest parts of an entrepreneur's journey is I'm going to leave the safety and security of my job and go into something that is, um, you know, so terrifying and scary that I've never done before that many people fail at. How am I going to do this? How am I going to overcome, you know, my limiting beliefs and go out there into the world and start my own thing? What was that like for you? So you're 25, you said you'd worked in out of college, you worked a job for a few years before starting this. Yeah, so you know this is this is an interesting um, this is an interesting lesson for me. During college, I I was an entrepreneur. Uh, I was a real estate agent, and so had some kind of you know part time opportunities where I was able to say, "Holy cow!" You know, I I, I taught Spanish for a couple of years in college. Um, uh, at the missionary training center, actually at BYU. And I, I love that. I love teaching, but you know, I think we were making 12 bucks an hour or $14 an hour, something like that. And so, um, I got into real estate, started selling houses. Um, I was a mortgage broker at the same time. And, wow. you know, it's thrilling to say, oh my gosh, you know, I'm a college student. I just got a check for 10 grand, or 15 <laughs> grand. Like this is unreal, yeah. you know? And, um, my my wife, who was my my girlfriend at the time, was you know obviously supportive of this, but um, I had I had these entrepreneurial experiences in college and, and actually in childhood, uh, you know, growing up. Uh, my little brother and I we we would walk around the neighborhood and we had this little cart and we would paint house numbers on curbs. And, you know, when you're, when you're eight years old or you're 10 years old and you're knocking on doors, you're like, Hey, you know, like, can I paint your house, house number on your curb? And you'd get the stencil kit and you'd figure out the best way to do it. And you kind of figure out uh, what works and what doesn't. But at the end of the day, when you're 10 years old and you come back with, you know, pockets full of cash and you're like, okay, I've got a couple hundred dollars yes. now. Like I'm the richest kid that I know. Like I, I'm going <laughs> to- So many comic books with this money. <laughs> yeah. And, and it, you know, I can't even remember what we spent the money on. I think it was probably a lot of like Super Nintendo games. Um, and, and pogs. <laughs> uh Oh, don't, don't go, don't go into the pogs. John and I, John and I have a big, you know, we could, we could, we have a pog background. We, we could go on and on about pogs. We'll save that for a later episode though. Yeah. So, so a lot of, a lot of nineties nostalgia that I could dive into, but I, I think once you have some of those experiences and, and comparatively you say, okay, 
I can mow the lawn for, you know, $2 or, or whatever it was. My parents were very, very, you know, strict with our chores and, and they didn't pay a lot. And you have an experience with, okay, on the open market, I could make a couple hundred bucks, you know, on a Saturday, uh, painting house numbers on curbs. That, that leaves a pretty big imprint um, on you. That's yeah, huge. Um, so flash forwarding back to college and, and sorry for the, the detour there. Um, no, that was great. I'd, I'd made, had these experiences which were similar in the feel of the thing. It was almost like, I can't believe I like, I cheated the system. I, I got <laughs> out of the matrix. Like, I can't believe how many hours it would have taken me to earn, you know, that amount of money. Um, and, and I was a very mediocre mortgage broker and, and very unfocused. You know, this is when I wasn't doing a class or, or whatever. Um, and, and then what happened was uh, my senior year of college, we watched the U.S. financial system completely implode. And that was surreal. I remember sitting in a macroeconomics class and, you know, they had their Bloomberg terminals up and the professor was, you know, sat on the board of a number of banks. And he was like, it was somber. It was almost like, you know, it was almost like he's like, guys, I, I don't know what's going to happen here. Uh, I'm, yeah. I'm actually scared. We haven't seen anything like this in our lifetimes. And my senior year of college, I made a huge mistake. And the mistake I made was, um, uh, I, I, I put aside what I knew I wanted to do for safety. And I took a job with a financial services startup. Um, it, it wasn't even in commercial real estate like I, I wanted, but they were growing during the great recession and I, I didn't have enough confidence in myself. You know, I'd watched the mortgage market fall apart. I'd watched the real estate market fall apart. And so I thought, gosh, you know, maybe, maybe teaching Spanish for $14 an hour sounds pretty good. <laughs> and, um, one second, did you say you joined a startup company for safety? Did I hear that? Did I hear that correctly? Yes. And, and I know that sounds funny, but but this was this was saying, hey, I know I'm gonna have a paycheck. Right. And um, you know, I showed up and and I think I was probably uh I, I wouldn't have hired me, if that makes sense. You know, I see guys kind of walk in and I think, no, <laughs> this guy's not gonna stick around, or he's gonna stick around, but he thinks he's smarter than everybody else, or he's gonna say, you know, there's a better way to do this, or the way that we're doing this is stupid, or the culture sucks, or I don't like, you know, the the nine to five. And and that was my experience. Um, you know, when I was in college selling mortgages and, and doing real estate, I could control my own schedule. And I showed up to a job where they said, You will be sitting at your desk at you know, 8 a.m. And I thought, I'm not a big structure guy, you know, personally, or at least I, I am fairly structured, but the, the concept of time and, and me don't get along. And, um, you know, I'd have a huge day and, and say, hey, we, we made these connections. We created these partnerships with these other firms. It's two o'clock. Peace out. You know, I'm going to call it a day. And they're like, no, 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 no. You get to sit at your desk till 6 p.m. And I was like, well, that's dumb. Um, you know, I, I produced and, and I overproduced and, you know, I, I did the things that you wanted me to do, but, you know, I, I don't like this. And um, at the end of the day, long story short, I, I ended up kind of mouthing off and, and my attitude sucked and I got walked out of the building one day. They were like, oh, wow, this guy is the worst. And, um, you know, there's a few moments in your life where it's uh, it's pivotal. These are these are like, you know, 
moments of no return. And I remember driving home and I had this big grin on my face because I was like, I had a sense. I was like, this is the close of a chapter. Uh, And and something- How old old were you here? I was 25. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe I was 24 at this time. Wow. So you're driving home, you're driving home with a grin on your face after getting fired, basically. Yeah. 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 Getting walked out of the building. (laughs) Literally walked out of the building by two dudes that were a lot bigger than me. And I was like, this is like the formality here. It just- it just left me with a it's like a movie. It, it was literally, it was literally like I okay, whatever. And so I, I jumped into my 1990 Mazda Miata and I drove home to my you know two bedroom apartment in Texas. And um, I was married, uh, and, and I am married. That was phrased weird. Uh, <laughs> and I walked in and and I saw my wife Kristen, and she kind of looks at me, you know, with this like glint in her eye, and I was like, oh yeah, because <laughs> she, she wasn't expecting to see me at. <laughs> At 10 a.m. on yeah. a Monday, and the the fun thing um, was, uh, she was pregnant. And we were about to have a baby, and it was any day. Wow. And wow, it, you know, it was kind of funny when I got fired. They're like, "Well, you know, we can we can a- a- assist you and go up to your your cubicle and clean out your stuff." And I was like, "Bro." I cleaned out my stuff like a month ago. Like you, <laughs> you, you were not going to see me. You were not going to see me after this child was born. Uh, and so I was kind of, sti- you know, I was kind of sticking around, but I had already decided that it was time to go. So um, I had a week. It was an amazing week. And I got to ponder what I wanted to do with my life. You know, having your first child is a very introspective moment. Um Right. That Saturday, uh, my wife went into labor around 5 a.m. And uh, 8.05 a.m., we had our, our first uh, child, uh, my son, Jack. Yes. And so yes. all in the space of one week, um, my whole life changed. I, 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 and I made a decision. I will never work for somebody else again. I don't care. Um, it's not a arrogance thing. It's not even a money thing. It's it's a freedom thing. I, I want to control. It's it's a freedom thing, and and I've always had a thing where I don't like to be controlled. Um, I think since you know since childhood, I was just like, don't tell me what to do. You know, <laughs> if it makes sense, I'll do it, but don't tell me what to do. Yeah, and there's nothing wrong with the other side of it, and this is kind of what no. we uh, no. you know talk a lot about on this find your freedom. Some people are just built to say, I want to write my own rules and I want to do things my own way, and other people have fulfilling, really happy lives. Yes, you know, living great normal uh, corporate jobs, which works out awesome. And they have great lives with it. And there's nothing wrong with either side. Yes. But what you're explaining is when you had, when you saw that glitch in the matrix, I want to go back to that. Yeah. That I think that I had that moment when I, uh, we have a mutual friend, Travis and Tyler. Yeah. Cause I was corporate. Yes. They showed me behind the curtain and I saw that glitch and I'm like, wait, I can make my own money, have my own equity. And, and, but you like, proactively said, I don't want to, I want to go search that out. It was kind of brought to me. Let's talk about that a little more now. So you had that proactive moment. I'm not going to work anymore. How did you get into actual, what you, what, what the start of Redstone? Absolutely. It, and I, I want to just say real quick, I think I could have had a very happy career in quote unquote corporate America. Um, it, it wasn't this particular job. And, and, you know, there's a number of reasons why that didn't work with my personality, but I've thought back, I could have had a very fun career in investment banking. Um, I think I could have had a rad career in venture capital. That's something that I do kind of yeah. for fun now. Um, not as like a platform, but as a very active investor in early stage companies. Right. Um, okay. So, so we sat in Texas, you know, we, we were like, all right, what are we going to do? And 
um, <laughs> I called up a, a group that I'd interned with and just said, a group called Peak Capital, amazing guys. I'm, I'm very good friends with them still to this day. And I just said, look, I know it's 2009. Um, and uh, I, I know that you can't pay me, but can I just come hang out with you guys? Like I know you guys are screening deals. And and the mistake I made coming back to that was the, the lesson learned full um, full circle was if the conditions aren't right to do what you want to do, don't go on down to some other path. If you know what you want to do, and I knew I wanted to do commercial real estate, I knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur, and I settled. And and you know that was a very difficult lesson for me, um, a lesson that I don't regret or I wouldn't take back. But anyway, I called these guys up and said, "Hey, I'm going to be at your office on Monday morning. I know you can't pay me. I know that things are really bad. You know, you haven't closed a deal in a long time." Um, capital markets are a disaster. You know, credit markets are frozen over. I get that. I just need to be here. And, what year is this, Grant? Um, this is 09. Okay. Yeah, this is 09. And so I, I moved back. Uh, this is what, you know, every son-in-law uh, does not want to do. <laughs> I, 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 moved in, we go. I moved into my in-law's basement. And, yes, um, with a baby. With a baby. With and, a <laughs> newborn baby. Wow. And... Um, you know, it uh, for a minute, it, it was kind of like, okay, I need to swallow my pride here. Um, I, I never failed at anything, you know, like in my life. I, I had a 4.0 in, in, um, in high school and I did exceptionally well in college. I'd never failed at something. And, and so, you know, getting walked out of the building was a little bit of a, a oh, you know, it's kind of like I got punched in the nose for a minute. Um, I got over that after a few weeks and uh, you know, my in-laws, I think there was a moment where, uh, a lot of people assumed that, oh no, he's out of work, you know, get, get this guy a job. And so people were saying, Hey, come work here. And I was like, no, I, I don't want to. And there's some interactions with, you know, parents and in-laws where they're like, what are you doing? Uh, you know, <laughs> get this, a is, job, this is, this is, this is wildly irresponsible, <laughs> maybe even reckless. Wow. And, um, I was like, whatever, you know, uh, this is going to bounce back. This is going to have to work out. So, um, I show up at, you know, peak capital and, uh, just, Hey, what, what, what can I do? What can I learn? And, uh, they started buying a few deals, uh, low income, uh, light tech, uh, you know, deals, low income tax credit deals. And I was starting to uh, get experience in some of the transactional side of things. I was underwriting some businesses they were considering purchasing and, one of the businesses that they were considering purchasing was a tiny property management company. Uh, it was it was a guy that played basketball with um, one of the the Peak Capital founders, and um, the whole the whole reason behind you know why don't we buy this company was well we're going to be buying a lot of apartments we should vertically integrate, and so um, you know I was kind of the the analyst on this deal and okay let's right. see if we can figure this out. Um, they closed the deal. It was kind of a partnership where they would share in, in profits. You know, Peak would provide the, the portfolio and, and the owner of this, you know, it, it was a one-man shop. Uh, and, and the owner of this, this um, little property management shop would, uh, would do the labor. And so... And you're, and you're interning for him right now. So you're just like... Yeah. Yeah. So I'm just like, well, how, how can I help? And, and so I showed up uh, after they cut the deal and, and I kind of dove in. I was like, okay, you know, uh, they were still using kind of a 1980s um, accounting system. 
they had like the, the financials were on one of those tractor feed, you know, uh, where you got to pull off the sides yes. of the paper. You guys remember that? Antiquated everything. It was it was insane. And I just thought, oh my gosh, there's so much potential. And then we started analyzing competition. I was like, there's really no competition here, at least regionally for, for a student housing firm. In, in the meantime, um, those groups didn't get along super well and uh, they decided to split. And so I had this moment where I was like, okay, I can continue to, you know, be, you know, kind of an unpaid uh, intern. Right. Or um, I spoke with a guy and just said, hey, I kind of like, I see some way to do this better. Um, and, and you know, the gentleman uh, running this, this firm, uh, this, this one man shop was hoping to retire in the next, you know, five years or so. So I just said, what, you know, why don't we just split this and um, you can be the gray hair and I'll be the energy and we'll see if we can make this yeah. work. So we did. And um, that was your, that was your open you were waiting for. That was it. Yeah. And, and I just said, I, I don't need to be paid. You know, we'll be, we'll be paid, you know, when I, when I can on the deals on the deals. And um, as I create it, then, you know, I'd like to, to participate. And so that was kind of the beginning of, uh, of Redstone. Um, you know, we took this wow. one man shop and, and simultaneously, and this was just so fortuitous. I, I don't know how it aligned, but um, I think the revenue of the company was something like, you know, $70,000 a year. I mean, it was awful. Oh, it was a one goodness. man, it was a one man shop. And uh, the same week that we closed this deal, uh, we brought on uh, a property management contract, not super sexy, but I think it paid something like 20 or 25, maybe $30,000 a month. And so um, we get going with this company and all of a sudden it's like, whoa, uh, we just three or four X the revenue of this company we're off to the races. So that was, you know, green light. Let's, let's go. Is that year one that all that took place? Yeah, that was 2009. I mean, this was in rapid succession. Uh, I, I think that this all happened in, uh, between April and July of 2009. So my, my, I got fired in, uh, in, and kind of decided to, uh, to go into the wilderness, so to speak in uh, March of 2009 and uh, we were kind of up and going with good revenue and, and you know, making better money than I was before uh, sometime late that summer. Oh, my goodness. So that was with a management company. How did you end up uh, starting to acquire actual deals? How far down the line was that? Yeah, great question. Um, so we started in my background is in finance. You know, I, I was kind of the spreadsheet jockey for some of these firms that were acquiring apartments. And so. That was the old. That was always the goal. the The property management company was was a path to get there. It was a way to say, okay, this is an industry where we at least get to play in the same sandbox. Um, very quickly, you know, this is two thousand nine uh, and two thousand ten. There were foreclosures everywhere, um, and so we got a line of credit from our bank, collateralized with our revenues from the management company, which were starting to become very robust. And we would just go to the courthouse steps and we were starting to buy townhomes, you know, one after the other for 130. Started multifamily. Yeah, we started buying, we started buying a bunch of townhomes, individual stuff, and we kind of fix them up and flip them. This is at the same time that we're managing, you know, large student housing complexes. Uh, within a year or two, we started to see the same thing with multifamily. We started to see these things come up. They were distressed. They weren't run well. And, and the beautiful thing about... Um, about property management. It's not the sexiest business on its face, but you have uh, 
you have very predictable recurring revenue, and then you have access to data. You understand exactly how a good property should run. And so when something pops up in your market, you can underwrite it in your head in about 10 seconds. And that's what was starting to happen. We would see these deals pop up and I would look at it and say, okay, the current owners owned it for 20 years, 30 years. It's managed by, you know, mom and pop um, uh, management company. You know, they're using paper ledgers and, you know, there's there's paper all over the place and, and file cabinets. You would automatically see all that value add right off you, the bat. You, it almost becomes intuitive. And so um, we right. went in and, and we said, okay, I'm going to take a big risk here. I'm going to throw down, you know, $50,000 non-refundable on this earnest money. And I'm going to bet that I can raise a couple million dollars to get this deal done. And so was that first deal regionally right where you were? It is. Yeah. It was in the first large multifamily. It was in Utah and, uh, beautiful, you know, that was, that was scary. That was another one of these moments when I, where I was, you know, $50,000 at that time was a lot of money. And so I, I, you know, told my wife, Hey, I'm going to give it my best shot. Um, I think that this is going to work out and wait a second. So you, so you, you put up 50 K yeah. Non-refundable before you had raised the 2 million bucks that you were going to need and you'd never raised capital before? You have to. Yeah. I mean, you kind of have to. It's like, you, you. I mean, that's the tough thing about syndication is you simultaneously have a fish on the line and you're invested in it with your own earnest money. And then during your due diligence process and your debt finance process, you've got to go come up with X millions of dollars. And so we had to go out and, and raise that. Did you have at least have soft commitments? No, we didn't have anything. We just we just thought like this is a great deal, you know, this deserves to be bought. Like I know we can turn this around. And um you know, then we just started calling everyone that we knew and we we're like, look, like, you know, we don't we don't have Real friends and family call, huh? Friends and family call. <laughs> and and the nice thing was we had we had a lot of credibility at that point. Um I had acquired, you know, right. real estate for other people. Uh we had certainly managed at the time, you know, thousands and thousands of beds and units. Of, of multifamily. And so it, it was actually pretty quick. Uh, we raised it, I think, within a week and oh, closed wow. on the deal. And it was like... They had people just <laughs> throwing money uh, at Grant, like this guy. Grant's going to make it rain. I love it. They knew. And, and so that... You'd put in the work. We, you put in the front-loaded work. You'd already known the numbers. We, you had already proven yourself on a bunch of previous smaller deals. Like, I love that. We, we knew it inside and out. And, and so that's one of the... Actually, the lessons that I learned was... Um, I wish I'd, I wish I'd had more confidence, uh, you know, in those early years when we were geeking out on, on software systems and procedures and, and, and dialing in operating expense ratios on these apartments, we knew our stuff. Um, you know, we were much, much better than we had realized at, at the time, um, at, at our craft. And so I'd wish that we had got out there earlier and, and it started to raise money earlier, uh, but you know, uh, it, it was necessary and it was formative. Well, it sounds like you actually did it pretty quick, Grant. So don't be too hard on yourself, but, um, but just a, <laughs> just yeah. a quick question for the audience, you know, people that are listening and go, I want to get into real estate. I want to be an investor, whether it be single family, multifamily student housing. Do you recommend property management as that first step entree into the business? Cause that sounds like that was kind of how you, Hmm. How you went into it. But he also had been a broker. That's true. He'd also been an agent. Yeah. So he had basically <laughs> gone through like That's true. all of the different aspects yeah. to learn that facet. I, I don't know that I would. It, it was right for my particular path and it got us into a niche where we could scale and, and dominate a vertical very, very quickly. 
I don't know that I would recommend that. Um, I think I think that my story is probably the exception to the rule. Um, I think that getting into a you know real estate private equity and an analyst role um, or you know an acquisitions role, I think that's a much more direct path toward it. Or you know some type of investment management role. Um, I, I think that most people kind, that kind of take a property management path are are typically unable to make that jump into the principal or the ownership side. And, and I don't think I would have been different had I not had experience, you know, investing on my own uh, as, as a real estate acquisitions analyst, you know, broker, uh, mortgage broker, that sort of thing. Yeah, that makes sense. It, it was what was available in 2009. <laughs> you know, it was, the, it was the door that was open <laughs> then. And, and honestly, I was like, well, it's going to be this or barista at Starbucks. Uh, it, it was kind of the door that was open. Yeah, we had a guest that said, uh, just get yourself in, in the corridor. Basically, get yourself in, a, in an area around people who are doing the things you want to be doing. Yes. And then whenever a window or a door opens, you're already in the corridor and you can walk your way through. So you saw the door open with this property management company. And it sounds like you had some pretty good foresight. You're like, I can scale this, but I'll also be able to be looking at other deals because I now have inside data and information that I can use for. Absolutely. And in day one or year one, um, you know, it was cool. It was like, hey, I am rubbing shoulders with these real estate private equity firms that are making these huge purchases of these apartment complexes. And so I I kind of I didn't see them as as kind of um, employers or clients. I was like, no, I'm peers with these guys. I just happen to be helping in this particular role. So year one, I would go to these groups and say, okay, guys, uh, you're buying a deal and it's a $40 million deal. Um, you know, my fee for, for, for my company is going to be whatever, $100,000 a year, $150,000 a year. Um, I am very disciplined. And what I like to do is roll in that fee. So why don't you roll in, you know, two years of management fee um, or a quarter million dollars into your deal as LP ownership and, you know, now we're aligned. And, and I'd say, now I'm a partner and I really care about your deal. You're not just paying me as a third party manager. And so I did that probably 15 or 20 times. And it was really fascinating. You know, now, now you are a partner. Now you are building a portfolio. Yes, my role is to run these assets. But, you know, two years in, they do a cash out refi. I get back 100% of my capital or sometimes 150 or 200% of my capital. And my eyes grow and I'm like, oh my gosh, these guys really taught me something about capital markets and how the best case of this works. Um, let's figure it out on, on our own. And then not, you know, not to mention, it's like, oh, I'm building a, a fairly good apartment portfolio. Uh, even though I'm not fully in the driver's seat, I'm building a very nice LP, you know, apartment portfolio. They like it because they can reduce their OPEX, right? Not have to be paying you the, the management fee. They they do. I mean, it, it's it's all kind of it all kind of washes out. It does help with some of the cash flow needs um, up front. But what they really like about it, and I still do this to this day, they really like the alignment. They say and and they brag about it. They'll say, you know what, um, you know, they'll tell their partners in New York or LA, our 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 operations firm, our property management firm, they're our partners. You know, these guys are, these guys have skin in the game. These guys have, have real dollars into this thing and they treat it as such. And so you have alignment and, and it makes us feel good. We're like, no, no, we're partners. You know, don't, don't talk down to us like a third party, you know, group that you hired and picked out of 10 other groups. Like we are your partners. And so that, that set us up for success later. So as you're doing these other deals, you're working your fee system into the making yourself basically a partner as being an LP. Yes. 
Um, when did you transition to really locking in your own Redstone deals and, um, you know, really start getting those leases up on the student housing? It was fairly early um, in the game. I think that we were buying our first apartment complexes in, in 2013 or so. Um, again, you know, if I, I wish I could have been doing this in 2009, 2010, uh, but yeah, you know, that was, I would say that was, um, a moment where we had to push past more fear, even than kind of those first steps and, and partnering up startup mode. Um, and the reason for that was it, it's very difficult to ask other people for money. I'm not someone that can easily say, Hey, can I have some money to do this? I take that very, very, very seriously. And, um, you know, it, it, it's very stressful. You're like, okay, we just took $10 million from investors. Like we have to perform and do what we said that we would do. And I never want anyone to come to me and say, you didn't do what you said you would do. We've never lost anyone's money uh, so far. Uh, anytime we've had an unhappy investor, there's been two or three times where they say, I, I don't know if I like this. Then we say, great, we'll cash you out. We'll buy your position, you know, immediately. Um, and so that was the most difficult part is getting over that fear to put yourself out there and say, okay, we're going to be on a tightrope here in a very visible way, um, you know, and, and people are going to judge us. And that's, right. that's scary. So looking back on that period, what, is there a certain moment or a certain experience as uh, either as you were first starting with just the condos or the multifamily or the student housing, where you and your wife or you and your team really thought like, all right, like this is it, like we are doing this and it's working and we're on a trajectory to make it happen. You know, I, I can't think of any really super pivotal moments beyond, you know, getting fired in Texas and walking out of there and just said like, you know, this is my crossing the Rubicon moment. Like from here, it's, you know, we're gonna forge our own path. Um, at Redstone, even in the early days, it felt very iterative. It, it nothing felt unnatural. Um, I, I think, you know, growing the company, um, there's been moments where you kind of gulp and say, oh my gosh, I can't believe we're doing this. You know, even recently in the last couple of years, we've made some significant hires uh, from companies that are much larger than us and said, I can't believe that these people are now working with us. Like, you know, uh, we've had a few moments like that, but I'd say overall on the path, it's been been very iterative. It's been very natural. Um, and, and it's just, it's worked out in hindsight. It's just, it's always worked out. And you had said earlier in the podcast that uh, what you were really working towards was getting freedom for yourself, for your family. Can you um, think back on any moment where uh, uh, recently you've been doing something? I know you have more freedom in your life now where it's been like, yes, this is what I was working for. This is worth it. The, all that hard work is now really paying off. Yeah, I, I think... Um... You know, we we had a moment in uh, 2018, and in 2018 we sold a few deals, and those were some of our first real big paydays. Um, I think for better or for worse, I am a deferred gratification guy, and and I'm always like, let's go long, let's go long. You know, let's you know, we're all in for the long term. We don't really sell a whole lot of stuff. If there's an opportunity to make a big fee or something, we're like, well, can we put it in an investment instead? This was the first moment where you know we had a lot of money, and and I think we'd sold an apartment complex. It was it was the biggest check I'd ever seen, and um, you know what what we did with that was we just we paid off all of our stuff. We just built our dream home, and and we paid that off, and we didn't have any debt, and um, we had enough apartments um, or ownership in enough apartments where our our, our monthly income um, was more than covered. And I think 
um, that was a moment that felt kind of special. Um, it wasn't as special maybe as I thought it would be. It it wasn't like, you know, I listen to Dave Ramsey and people are cheering and saying we're debt free and all this. It wasn't, it wasn't, wasn't, (laughs) yeah, exactly. It it wasn't quite like that. Um, right. But, but when, when COVID is the stress, maybe this, this stress, I started sleeping very well at night. Um, and and that was something that I, I don't naturally do. I'm a little bit of a nocturnal, you know, uh, insomniac in some ways. And I was grateful for that when COVID hit, uh, because when COVID hit, I just said, you know what, it's going to be okay. The company has zero debt. Uh, we have zero debt. Um, I think in entrepreneurship, the ability to stay lean is um, it's a superpower. And I think in those first five years, if you can stay lean personally, uh, it, it allows you the flexibility to do what needs to be done. And you don't get put into a corner where you have to do things that you don't want to do. What? Um, let's switch gears a little bit here and, and really talk to the aspiring entrepreneurs that are listening in the audience right now. What advice do you have for them sort of going through all these experiences that you've had over the last 20 years, going from starting out to now being basically 40,000 leases and growing in 16 different states that Redstone has now? Um, they're either in a, uh, just got a college or they're in a job that they're not liking. What advice do you have to tell them that you wish someone would have told you when you were in that position? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. As, as you listen to podcasts and read books and you and you listen to people tell their stories, um, there's almost a mythology, uh, that is kind of cast around entrepreneurship. And I, I think on the one hand, I understand it. When you look back and kind of think about the glory days, um, it's hard not to mythologize if that's a word, um, those moments. Um, at the same time, I think that might dissuade people from taking steps toward entrepreneurship. So when I think about entrepreneurship, and this was a huge kind of fallacy that I had in my mind during college, I would sit in these lecture series uh, where they'd have entrepreneurs come and they'd tell their whole story and say, you know, I did this thing in my garage and then I sold it for, you know, a couple hundred million dollars. Yeah. And like, that not that so cool? And so I thought, okay, well, you know, an entrepreneur is someone who quits their job cold turkey, has <laughs> zero income and uh, magically comes up with startup capital for this brilliant new idea that nobody has ever had. In reality, um, some of the coolest entrepreneurs that I know, it's a guy that owns a CPA firm. Um, It's a guy that says, hey, I'm doing taxes. Maybe I don't want to do taxes um, for the rest of my life. I'm going to hire a bunch of really cool people and I have a great reputation and a great, uh, you know, um, great relationships with my clients. And now he owns a CPA firm with, you know, a hundred CPAs. That is an entrepreneur. Uh, and I thought I had to invent maybe the next Google in order to <laughs> to be legitimized um, as an entrepreneur. Um, the second thing is, uh, you know, when, when I was working in corporate America for those you know short months, um, I thought, okay, I'm going to start a thing on my side, uh, or, or, or excuse me, I'm going to start a thing on the side, you know, outside of uh, business right. hours, and. Um, you know, most people will say, oh, it's hard to find the time. It's not hard to find the time. It's hard to find the energy. And you would come home, you know, I come home from at 6.30 or 7 p.m., completely exhausted from, you know, this this really ridiculous, um, you know, slog of a job. And I had no energy. And I would want to sit on the couch and watch Sports Center or, or whatever, right? And so um, I think in today's world, uh, 
there's a lot more freedom around your time. And so if you're a person that has a work from home arrangement, if you're a person that, you know, just has a little bit more flexibility, you can manage that energy and drive that into an entrepreneurial path um, in a way that I don't think you could 10 or 20 years ago. Um, and then the third thing I'd say is uh, find a partner. Uh, you know, I don't think that I could have done um, what we did without the moral support of a partner, you know, day to day. And there were a million times when I thought I'm going to quit. Uh, my, my wife would always say, um, I would, I would, um, I was thinking about going back for an MBA. And so, uh, you know, I'd have a hard day and I'd pick up the GMAT study guide and she'd go, Oh no, ah. he's, he's studying for the, he's <laughs> studying for the GMAT again. Uh Oh, like, happened? don't do that. Do what happened way. to, what happened at work today? And I'm like, ah, you know, I don't think I can do this. I, and there was a few times I probably had three or four times where I just said, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. And I, I think I probably, I think my growth would have been slowed a lot if, if, if I were alone. And, and it's funny, my two original partners have since retired. Um, and uh, even now, uh, I, I'm elevating kind of our, our next generation of leadership into a partnership role with equity incentive plans, that sort of thing. And, and, I like having partners. It's um, it's not just because, and, and maybe I could make more money if I said no. One hundred percent of the company is 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 mine, and I get all the profit. Um, I don't think that's the right way to to think about it. I think that you'll go a lot farther with with partners. And so, if there's somebody that you know that shares that passion, and that you you've known them for some time, and you have established um, some some base level of trust, um, I think that's a really I think that's a way to kind of tilt the odds in your favor. Wow. I'm blown away by those, Grant. That was really, really something. All three of those uh, those points and the way that you laid them out. I think uh, people can get a lot of value from from hearing your, um, your thoughts on that. Now, what are your thoughts on work-life balance and, and time management? You mentioned something to us earlier about, you know, wanting to get into real estate to get to a place where you're comfortable and have that freedom of, uh, of schedule. Um, how do you look at time management and uh, work-life balance? Yeah. Okay. So, so here's a little bit of a paradox. Um, uh, you know, I don't compartmentalize very well. Um, I don't, when someone says work-life balance, I kind of scoff at that and think like, there's no work life. There's only life. Um, and, and I've tried to treat people in that way as well. You know, I, I talk, I talk the exact same to people at work as I would in my social life and, and, you know, our clients, I talk to them like they're old high school buddies. I don't compartmentalize and have a different persona or a different system for each part of my life. Um, so I don't know, like work-life balance, I think, uh, in entrepreneurship, it, it might be a little bit of a myth, uh, in startup days. If I may totally honest with you, I know that I, I know with kind of the, the, criticisms of hustle culture uh, today that may not be a popular opinion, but I look at my twenties and, and I think, okay, I'd work as hard as I could, you know, in the business, you know, during the day servicing clients, how do I do this? How do I block and tackle? Um, I go home, I'd have dinner, you know, put my you know baby to bed, spend some time with my wife. And then, you know, I I'm, I'm an idol. And so, you know, at nine or 10 PM, um, she'd go to bed and I would go work for another three or four hours and just pound it out. And that was my work-life balance. Um, today, it doesn't look like that. Uh, typically, I'm out of the office by six, but I enjoy what what uh, what I do like a lot. I, I really I really like it. The times that I'm working nights and weekends, unless we have an active deal on the line, um, 
much less often, much less often. But I think that work-life balance uh, in the short term might be a little bit more of a myth. I think in the long term, you have to carve it out. And, and especially with regard to your family, um, you can burn the candle at both ends for yourself, you know, for a long time, particularly in your 20s and, and maybe your early 30s when you have lots and lots of energy. Yeah. But, you know, I, I look at all this and think, um, you know, six months after I retire or I'm done or we sell the company or, or whatever that looks like, people aren't going to remember that. You know, it's it's your kids that are going to remember you 30 years later, 50 years later. And so like having that family and carving out time for vacations and, and being present when you are home, I think that's more important than any, you know, short term, you know, balance in terms of calculating the minutes here and the calculating the minutes there. That's a great response. Yeah, some of the entrepreneurs that we sit down with say it's really important to have like a diverse skill set where you really understand all facets of the business. And then some of the entrepreneurs say like, I'm good at this one or two things. And then I kind of just find other good people and rely that. Which camp do you sit in? Oh, I, you know, okay. So, so that's a little bit of a polarity that I, I don't know if I accept the uh, exclusivity of, of one or the other. <laughs> I, you know, I, I think that, uh, I think you have to be both. And, and so how I've envisioned it is um, mo most entrepreneurs are intensely curious. And, and so I think that your ability to learn rapidly about things you know nothing about, you know, stepping into a business, I have no idea how HR works, right? But, you know, I can read a few books and listen to some smart people and, and have a pretty good understanding to where I might know more than 99.5% of the average person walking down the street. So I, I think you do need to establish skills as a generalist. Um, and then as your company grows, you, you decide which hats you want to keep. And typically the hats that you decide to keep are the hats that you're best at and that you have the most depth of knowledge and experience. And so, um, yeah, like I know how to do accounting. I did, I've done a lot of accounting. Uh, that is not my forte. Uh, you know, I kept the books for our right. company for probably three years maybe five years. I, I did property level books at night after work for a very long time. Um, that's not where I spend my time today. Um, where I spend my time is, is deal making, uh, raising capital and kind of infusing a culture and, uh, and, and a general long-term strategy into the company. Um, that's where I've chosen. Those are the, the hats I've chosen to retain. And yeah, those are now specialized, but at first it was not specialized. So maybe it's part of the evolution. I, I don't know if you can pick one or the other, but ultimately... Those were, Venn, those were Venn diagram question. And I like that you just kind of found a nice little gray area <laughs> in the middle. I, I totally agree with you. Yeah, it, it changes over time. And at the beginning, you do have to kind of be good at a lot of yep. things. I, I agree with you completely. This next, next question, we ask every single entrepreneur on the podcast. And it's very personal. And it's we've gotten basically the entire gamut of responses. How would you define entrepreneurship? I think that I would define entrepreneurship as the relentless pursuit of progress and opportunity without regard to available resources. And, um, and then I would add on like an eternal optimism that you can figure it out long-term, maybe not wow. this week, but long-term. I love that. That's awesome. Uh, what is, what is the best piece of advice that you were ever given? Hmm. I mean, most of them I didn't listen to. So I, I think that there's a lot of, there's a lot of painful <laughs> lessons. I think that, uh, I had a number of mentors that were trying to convince me 
um, five or 10 years ago, hey, you're doing too much. You're going to get burned out. You need to learn how to delegate. You need to learn how to trust, uh, you know, people in your company. And, and uh, th- those are things that I, I, by and large, did not listen to. Um, I think the best, you know, I think I had a, a mentor um, and he's one of the few people that really took a big chance on me. He, he tossed me the keys to uh, his $50 million development in 2009. And it was, it was struggling. It was possibly going to fail as a development. Um, he tossed me the keys at 25 and just said, I trust you that you're going to figure it out. But um, wh- what he taught me was that the only true currency in business is trust. Um, typically, contracts are a contracts are a proxy for trust. Uh, we're trying to bridge around a trust gap, and uh, that stuck with me. Uh, you know, he was a guy. He he was a commercial banker in his career, and he would always do the right thing no matter what the contract said. And that stuck with me. And I have a number of clients that, um, you know, maybe they've they've given us their apartments to run. Uh, maybe they've given us millions of dollars and they don't look at the contracts. They shake my hand. They look at me in the eye and they say, I trust you that you're going to do the right thing for me. And um, I, I think that's the best advice I've received. It's, it's you know, trust is the real currency of, of business. Things go so quick and so smooth when that's present. And um, so striving to become an entrepreneur or a business owner or a person that is worthy of that trust, that can earn and cultivate that trust, uh, I think that's the number one thing. And always honoring that trust. It, it takes a long time to cultivate and it's very easy to lose. And so that's all you have. You know, that's all you have out in the marketplace that's is is, um, is is that trust. And, you know, people will paper around it with contracts, but, you know, in reality, right. they have to believe that you'll do what you said you'll do. I think it seems obvious, but, but man, that's such a huge one. And I think when you're coming up and you're early on and you want to get there so badly and you want to get there yesterday, you know, there can be a tendency to cut some corners and it won't be that big of a deal if I just, I said I was going to do this, but I I can do it like this over here. And, and when you cut those corners, you damage your trust, you damage your reputation and, and that's that's not going to get you where you want to be long-term. People see it a mile away. And, and I think in real estate, um, you know, the term I hear express most is, you know, this person's acting like this is their last deal they'll ever do. And, (laughs) and so, you know, even in a big transaction, um, you know, you you don't want to go in and, and just destroy your counterparty. Um, you don't want to pull every penny off the table. You don't want to negotiate so hard, um, to where they're never going to do business with you. And and on the employer side, you know, we've always tried to say, be north of fair with your team, you know, like know what that line is for fair and be north of that. And so we, we try to do that um, over and over again with how we do business as, as, a, as an employer, um, how we do business and interact with the marketplace. We, we want to be north of fair. And, and uh, that's the best thing ever, because then people trust you. They come back for deals two through 10. There's been a number of times where, you know, someone's really stuck it to us. And I just think, we will never do business, you know, with you again. And I will remember this for the next right. 50 years. And so will my friends and so right. will the, all of our associates. And I think what an expensive proposition right. uh, to win on one deal and then to lose on the next, you know, 10 or 20. Yeah. Talk about playing the short game instead of the long game. It's, it's ridiculous. And, and, you know, real estate, as, as all of you know, uh, this is not a get rich quick. This is a get rich very slowly. And, um, 
you know, you, you, relationships are probably the most important thing there. That's such a good answer to that question. This has been such an interesting episode because it's a piece of real estate that is obviously huge. And I think a lot of us was part of our lives in student housing, but isn't often spoken about. And I don't, I don't think even people understood the real complexity to it. So I think it's going to be really an insightful and in, interesting episode for Everson. Thanks so much for sharing it with us, Grant. Absolutely. I no, appreciate that. Yeah, we all have different ways to finding our freedom, and I super appreciate you sharing your path with us. Uh, where can we find you when people ask, like, how do we find Grant? How do we find Redstone? Where should we send them? Uh, show me an email, you know, grant at redstoneresidential.com. Uh, find me on LinkedIn, just Grant Collard. Instagram, Grant Collard. I got to warn you, my Instagram is mostly, you know, videos of me flying airplanes, uh, but uh, uh, <laughs> ah, you, you can definitely find me there. As it should be. You put in the, you put in the front loaded time <laughs> to get that airplane. So <laughs> thanks so much, Grant. We super appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Grant, you're the man. Thank you so much for coming on. You're an insightful dude. And, and um, I think our listeners are really going to get a lot out of this episode. So we appreciate you. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Real quick, I have three things for you. Number one, are you an aspiring entrepreneur that wants to find your own freedom? Or are you just unfulfilled or unhappy in your current job and you crave more? Our goal at FYF is to build a community uniting successful entrepreneurs with aspiring entrepreneurs and provide the best resources possible to provide you on your entrepreneurial journey. Number two, check out our free entrepreneurship ebook and all the resources you need to find your own freedom at findyourfreedompod.com. Number three, one of the best ways for podcasts to grow is to share episodes with your friends and family. It would mean the world to Doug and I if you would follow us on your favorite audio platform and watch us and subscribe on YouTube.